Welcome to Sex Savvy, where nothing is off limits. I'm Kimberly Resnick Anderson, your host and creator of Sex Savvy. I've been helping couples and individuals achieve optimal sexual health for more than 25 years. I am ready to share my unique insights and sex-positive approach with the world. We'll talk about hang-ups, kinks, fantasies, and function, what's hot, what's not, and most importantly, how to become sex-savvy. Hi, welcome to Sex Savvy. I'm your host, Kimberly Resnick-Anderson. If you're new to Sex Savvy, welcome. If you're a returning listener, it's so nice to have you back. Today, I'm going to be talking about erectile dysfunction. And ED, or impotence, is by far the most common complaint that brings men into my office. I've probably treated over a thousand men with erectile dysfunction over the last 25 years, and it continues to be and probably always will be the most common sexual complaint that men have. I'm going to talk with you about how men will do virtually anything to stay hard and how sexual prowess is so key to masculinity and the cultural impact of that over hundreds and thousands of years. I'll also be talking to you about some trends in erectile dysfunction that I've noticed in my clinical caseload. We will talk about risk factors for ED, not just organic risk factors, but also psychological and emotional risk factors as well. I'll be talking with you about the impact of ED on a man's sexual self-esteem and sense of masculinity, but also on his overall well-being and on his relationship. I'll be discussing the many, many treatment options that are available for erectile dysfunction, and I'm going to put a specific emphasis today on what are called PDE5s. It's a class of drug like Viagra or Cialis or Levitra. I'm going to be talking about the pros and cons of these drugs, as well as other treatment options that are available, many of which work quite well, actually. So I will focus on those things. Of course, I'll also be answering your questions, and I'll give you a sex IQ quiz on ED. So welcome, and let's get to it. So just how common is erectile dysfunction? Chances are, if you're male and you're listening to this podcast, you have at least at one point had difficulty either achieving or maintaining an erection. That means it was either hard for you to get hard or stay hard. And the truth is that more than 30 million men experience erectile dysfunction every year just in the U.S. alone. And if you're wondering how common it is, and how likely a man is to experience erectile dysfunction, I'm going to be talking with you about the many, many types of risk factors so you can personalize your individual risk factor. But there is a a sort of loose rule of thumb that we use in the sexual health field where whatever decade of life you're in, that's the risk of experiencing ED. So if you're in your 40s, you have a 40% chance of experiencing erectile dysfunction. If you're in your 60s, you have a 60% chance of experiencing erectile dysfunction and so on and so forth into your 80s and 90s where you would have an 80 or 90% chance of experiencing erectile dysfunction. So ED is actually really common. Men have long been searching for the holy grail of penile prowess charlatans, healers, and quacks have exploited male insecurities about sexual performance for over 2,000 years at least that we know of. In fact, men are so invested in their erections that sometimes they will risk heart attacks and strokes to avoid erectile dysfunction. In essence, some men value their penis function over their life. And I've, I've seen this in my clinical experience hundreds of times. 
I've treated so many men who stopped, for example, their blood pressure medication because it caused erectile dysfunction. And when I explain to them the medical risks of discontinuing the medication, they'll say, I'd rather risk being dead than impotent. This pressure to perform sexually is extraordinarily burdensome for men, and it is the most basic measure of their self-esteem and masculinity. This is proven by the supplement industry. (laughs) There are thousands of of supplements out there and vitamins and concoctions that claim to enhance sexual function in men and specifically erectile function. But unfortunately, this supplement industry is not regulated by the FDA, so there's no quality control. And the quality is often highly compromised. There are supplements like Reload and things like Weekend Warrior or King of Romance or Black Panther. There are literally thousands that all claim to give men the holy grail of sexual prowess. I'm not an expert on the sexual enhancement supplement industry, but I am an expert when it comes to talking to men about their own sexual expectations, cultural expectations, fears, and insecurities when it comes to sex. I've treated men in their 20s and 30s who have seriously considered and some who have actually attempted suicide because of the shame of impotence. It's so humiliating. I treat men who have avoided dating for literally years and sometimes decades due to worry over erectile dysfunction. Well, needless to say, none of these supplements or herbal concoctions work. None of them do what they promise they're going to do. There's been zero clinical studies or research done that shows that any of them are efficacious in any way. If they were, some of the drug companies wouldn't be making billions of dollars on PDE5s, and I would likely be out of a job. So, sorry guys, they don't work. But the obsession with erections and penis size as well is a measure of masculinity that dates back, as I mentioned earlier, thousands of years. In ancient Greece and Rome, snake oil was ingested to cure impotency because snakes were believed to so-called regenerate themselves. This is where the reference to snake oil comes from. The genitals of all sorts of animals, roosters, goats, wolves, sparrows, Bulls were cooked up in stews or eaten raw, and elixirs, salves, balms, and other concoctions have been rubbed on, inhaled, and ingested by hundreds of millions of men with the same goal, to achieve the hardest and longest-lasting erection possible. And still now, even though we have vacuum pumps and injections and suppositories and implants and revascularization surgery and mechanical contraptions and pharmaceuticals, there's still panic. Men are absolutely traumatized at the notion of not having reliable erections. So our culture perpetuates this message that a man's worth is tied to his penis. This is so long-standing and deeply ingrained in our modern society that entrepreneurs, legit and non-legit alike, will forever benefit from it financially. When it comes to men's penises, they are the most exploitable group on earth. Always have been, always will be. 
Okay, let's move on now and talk about some of the actual risk factors for erectile dysfunction. I'm going to start by highlighting some of the organic or biological risk factors. As I mentioned earlier, age can be a risk factor for ED, but there are men in their 70s, 80s, and 90s who've never experienced erectile dysfunction, and there are men in their 20s and 30s who have experienced erectile dysfunction. So age in and of itself is not necessarily an accurate predictor. But there are other things that right away are red flags. So when a man calls me and we're on the phone and he says he has ED, there are certain questions that I ask immediately. And those questions are, do you smoke? How much alcohol do you use? Are you overweight? Are you obese? Do you use drugs? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you on any blood pressure medications, so anti-hypertensive medications? Are you diabetic? Have you been diagnosed with any sort of heart disease? And do you ride a bicycle more than three hours a week? So these are the quick and easy go-tos that help me determine whether someone should start with me in the sex therapy office or whether they should go to their medical doctor or see a urologist to rule out organic causes or whether it's likely that they have more of a psychological origin, in which case they should come and see me first. So what's interesting is that I end up, as a non-physician, catching underlying medical problems that are undiagnosed because men will call for help if they're having a problem with their penis. They won't necessarily call for help if they have a problem with their heart or their blood pressure. So Because men are highly motivated to have reliable erections, sometimes I'm able to inadvertently save their lives by getting them diagnosed with a major life-threatening underlying medical problem that they are unaware that they have. So if I'm having a consultation with a prospective patient and we're talking on the telephone and he answers no to all of those questions, he's not overweight, he doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink too much, he doesn't have high blood pressure or high cholesterol, he's not on antihypertensive meds, he has no heart disease, he's not diabetic, and he's not a bicycle rider, but yet he's experiencing erectile dysfunction. I'm going to tell him that he needs to come and see me. If he says yes to some of those questions, then it might be a toss-up between whether he starts with me or whether he starts with a medical doctor. If he answers yes to all of those questions, I'm going to be sending him straight away to the doctor or a urologist for further examination. Before I go too much further, talking about the biology and physiological processes of arousal and erectile dysfunction, it's really important that I stop here and explain to you some important and invaluable classifications that I make in order to determine whether someone should meet with me or meet with a doctor, medical doctor. And one of the first questions I ask if a man says that he's experiencing erectile dysfunction is whether or not he wakes up with morning erections, whether he has so-called morning wood. Another question I ask is if the man is able to masturbate with a reliable erection, and if he says yes, that's really important information for me. And I'm going to go ahead now and explain these classifications and why they're crucial in terms of the treatment plan and the prognosis. So in my inaugural episode, I spoke with you a little bit about the phases of sexual response. 
and the components of sexual identity. I'm now going to broaden your understanding of sexual health by adding some important classifications that we make that sort of guide us in terms of our treatment. And the first thing that I have to determine is whether or not someone's sexual complaint or sexual dysfunction is what we call lifelong versus acquired. We also refer to that as primary versus secondary. So if a man says to me, he has ED, that doesn't tell me much. What I want to know is, for how long has he had ED? And he might say to me, well, I've never experienced erectile dysfunction until I found my wife in bed with my brother or a neighbor, or I never experienced erectile dysfunction until I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and had surgery. Now, these examples are what we call acquired or secondary erectile dysfunction because there was a baseline period of functioning where the men can say, I had no problem. And then at this point in my life, at a moment in time, then I started experiencing problems with my erection. So we would refer to that as an acquired problem. The other really important classification that I want to point out to you is whether or not the dysfunction is what we refer to as global or generalized versus situational. So a man might say to me, he can't get an erection with his wife, but he can with his girlfriend. Or he can't get an erection with his wife, but he can with his boyfriend. So this is a context-based problem. And it's not across the board, regardless of circumstance, it's quite situational. And that's indicative of a more psychological or emotional explanation rather than an organic problem. Because if you have an organic problem, it's likely to manifest across all domains and not be so situation specific. The third important classification that I need to make to the best of my ability as a non-physician is whether or not this person's Erectile dysfunction is what we call organic versus psychogenic. So is there some sort of biological or medical explanation, or is it probably more of a psychological or emotional problem that is serving as a barrier for them to be expressive and functional? Once I make these three assessments, my job gets a lot easier. I'm going to throw in a little impromptu pop quiz here. What would you guess would be easier to treat if someone came in and they had a lifelong erectile dysfunction or an acquired sexual dysfunction? What intuitively would you guess about which one is easier to treat? Well, the answer is it's easier to treat an acquired problem. And that is because when someone has some baseline period of functioning, we know that at one point everything was working. Psychologically and physiologically, all systems were go. If someone says that this is a lifelong problem, it's likely to be much more complicated. Now, what would you guess would be easier to treat if someone came in and said they had a situational sexual dysfunction versus a global one. What do you think about that? 
The answer is it's easier to treat a situational problem than it is to treat a global problem. Because if it's situational, then that is suggestive that it works sometimes under certain circumstances. There is function there. If someone has a global problem across the board, regardless of context, they're experiencing some kind of dysfunction, then that's going to be a lot harder because we have less to work with in terms of that baseline. Most of the men I end up treating for erectile dysfunction would fit into the category of having acquired situational psychogenic erectile dysfunction, meaning it's new, it hasn't always been a problem, it only manifests under certain conditions or circumstances, and there's no organic cause, no medical or biological explanation. One of the things that I want to do in this podcast is identify clinical trends, themes, and patterns that I'm noticing in my sex therapy practice. And one of the things that I've been noticing for quite a few years and that I've written about is that younger and younger men are seeking help for erectile dysfunction. I'm talking men in their late teens and 20s and 30s. When I first became a sex therapist back in the early 1990s, Erectile dysfunction was an older man's concern. I saw men in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and now I see men in their 20s who can't get an erection. And while the more mature crowd has newfound confidence thanks to PDE5s like Viagra or Levitra or Cialis, it's really now the younger guys who are struggling to perform. What's going on and why can't young men keep it up? Well, I've come up with four reasons why guys in their 20s are struggling with erections, and I'm going to share those with you now. So think back to the 1980s and prior. Boys typically saw their first naked pictures or porn in Playboy magazine or in a pinup calendar or on a nudie poster. They knew where their dad or their uncle stashed the goods If they were a true friend, they even stole a magazine to share with their buddies. If they were really lucky, they struck gold by finding something more hardcore like Penthouse or Hustler. They got the bulk of their sex ed in the locker room and explored masturbation in so-called circle jerks around the campfire at Boy Scout campouts. For those of you who don't know what a circle jerk is, it's when a group of boys sit around and masturbate themselves, but in a public situation. Well, the internet changed everything. American children now begin consuming hardcore porn at an average age of 11. Kids now start getting access to hardcore porn at an average age of 11. Witnessing endless combinations of sexual behaviors may leave these boys with what I call arousal templates that make it difficult to respond to more conventional, loving, or intimate sexual interactions. When you've watched anal rape or sex with horses and dogs, enema porn, squirters, lactation porn, simulated child porn, or actual child porn, threesomes, and the so-called money shot or bukake hundreds or more likely probably thousands of times by the age you are 14 or 15, vanilla sex, conventional sex, may lack the flavor that you need to achieve and sustain arousal. In other words, it will be boring. 
When guys rely on porn to have an orgasm, they become extremely efficient at responding to their own touch. I call this self-stimulation dependence or a dependence on masturbation. They know just how much pressure and speed to use to extend their arousal and how much to use when they are ready to ejaculate. They become experts at getting themselves off. Some men expect women to look a certain way, respond a certain way, be receptive to any and all sexual behaviors that they might have seen depicted in porn. And when the reality of sexual inhibition and rigid repertoires come crashing down, it can leave young men without adequate stimulation to get and stay hard. So a lot of the men that I see, they say that conventional sex with their partners is just too boring. They become dependent on the kinds of themes and images that they see in porn. They're actually unable to complete the phases of sexual response without some sort of more graphic or more perverse stimulation. And it's a really big problem. I see hundreds of guys a year in their 20s who can only get off A, to their own hand because of the physical stimulation that they have sort of perfected over the years. And also the loving and intimate types of sex that they're having with their real-life partners pale in comparison in terms of the perversity that they're able to see online, and it's just not getting them excited enough to where they can either get or keep an erection, or if they can keep an erection, oftentimes they're not able to ejaculate because they're just not getting to that level where they reach the point of ejaculatory inevitability. I want to state for the record now officially that I am not anti-porn. I'm going to repeat that. I am not anti-porn. I think porn can enhance someone's sexual pleasure and their satisfaction. I think porn can be great education for people. I think porn can validate people who feel alone in a specific erotic interest or kink. I think porn can be fun to share with your partner. So I think there are many, many positives around pornography. The concern is that younger and younger kids are getting exposed to porn and it's shaping their response. There's a dopamine hit. There's a neurologic process that's happening where kids are getting kind of desensitized to certain behaviors and then are becoming dependent on dopamine to be activated in their brain in order to be sexually responsive during more conventional kinds of sexual encounters, it certainly can be problematic. The second reason why I believe younger and younger men are experiencing erectile dysfunction stems from alcohol abuse and drug use. People drink to take the edge off, and it works. Alcohol has a much appreciated disinhibiting effect that allows men and women to feel more social and more comfortable in social situations. There are many young adults who don't feel comfortable without a drink in their hand. They wouldn't want to go to a party if they couldn't have a beer. The problem is that alcohol is a depressant. It might provide so-called liquid courage, but it is not a friend of the penis. Alcohol undermines sexual function, especially the arousal phase. Also, it's not uncommon for men to share with me that they've never had sober sex. They have literally never had sex without being under the influence of alcohol and or drugs. 
I've treated hundreds of men in recovery who discover that they can't keep an erection because it feels too intimate. Without that beer, without that joint, they aren't able to relax and perform. They don't know how to relate and be present without hiding behind those chemicals. Their emotional and sexual development basically stopped when they started partying. I see this a lot in my practice, and it's definitely one of the reasons I believe that younger men are experiencing erectile dysfunction. The third reason that I think younger and younger men are having trouble getting and staying hard is because they're on the so-called down low or have some other secret perhaps about their gender identity or their sexual script. So let me explain. Although LGBT rights have come a long way, they really have, many guys in their 20s are still afraid to come out. They want a conventional lifestyle or they fear that their family or religion will disown them or excommunicate them if they are openly gay or trans. So they attempt to engage in traditional conventional sexual relations. The problem is that their fantasy life, their their private subjective erotic script does not match the reality of the behavior. Homoerotic men share that they try to fantasize about having sex with a man, but it's not enough. Some trans clients report that they fantasize about being a woman, but the inevitable reality of their biologic male status renders them impotent. Living a secret life takes a toll not only on your sexual function, but also on your overall mental health and quality of life. The inability to be authentic can stand in the way of sexual, emotional, and psychological health and satisfaction. A man may feel he can't be honest, but his penis will speak the truth. Other examples of this are if a man has a particular kink or fetish, and he's dependent on that in order to complete the phases of sexual response, yet he keeps that secret or private. Often it renders him unable to get an erection or keep an erection or come. And it's the secret, it's the fact that they're not able to be authentic and honest about their erotic script. This is what's causing them to have ED because they're not able to engage in the thing that most reliably turns them on. The fourth reason I believe younger and younger men are experiencing erectile dysfunction is depression, anxiety, and obsessive compulsive disorder, and the medications that we use to treat these conditions. As we all know, depression zaps people of energy and vitality. Getting out of bed is a chore. Making it to work is a huge accomplishment. And sexual energy is also undermined by depression. When the future is dark, you feel terrible about yourself and can barely shower. Your sex life, and in particular, your erectile functioning, will very likely suffer. Anxiety is rampant in young adults. Chronic worries can dampen an erection. For the first time in American history, young adults are going to be less successful than their parents. Worries about finances and college loans and achievement and overall success plague many young men. And to boot, the cultural expectation to be good in bed complicates already tenuous self-esteem. Performance anxiety can render a man impotent in two seconds flat. And when you add OCD to the mix, all bets are off. 
Men with OCD often worry about germs or contaminating someone or being contaminated by bodily fluids. They worry about smells and odors. They worry that they have bad breath or that their penis is too small or that it has a funny shape. They worry that they'll get AIDS or some other sexually transmitted infection. They're overwhelmed with intrusive thoughts, tortured by preoccupying fears, and sometimes compelled to engage in rituals that may seem bizarre to their partner. I see lots of men with OCD, and they get intrusive thoughts in their head that definitely make it difficult for them to focus on the sensory experience of the sexual contact that they're having. And so depression, anxiety, and OCD are common for the men that I see who come into my office with erectile dysfunction in their teens, 20s, and 30s. As more and more young adults deal with the pressure of our modern society, they turn to medication, pharmaceuticals, to address their anxiety and depression. And there's a particular class of antidepressant called an SSRI, which stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, such as Prozac or Paxil or Zoloft or Celexa or Lexapro, you may have heard of one of these. You may be taking one of these. And they're notorious for causing sexual side effects. In fact, a lot of men discontinue their antidepressants because it causes erectile dysfunction and can make it difficult to have an orgasm. In fact, the sexual side effect of SSRIs as affecting orgasm and increasing ejaculatory latency, which basically means making it harder to come, it's such a reliable side effect that we actually use that medication to treat premature ejaculation or rapid ejaculation. And I'll be talking about that in another episode, but if a side effect is so reliable that we actually use the medication to target a different complaint, then you know that it's going to be a barrier to compliance. And what I do when I refer one of my patients to a psychiatrist or their primary care doc for medication for depression or anxiety is pretty much warn them in advance that it could cause sexual side effects. And I don't even say it could, I pretty much say it will. Because research shows that if you warn someone in advance about a side effect of a medication, they're less likely to discontinue the medication as a result of that side effect. There is a class of medication that are called antipsychotics, and these also can wreak havoc with sexual function in men. Antipsychotics tend to increase what's called prolactin, and prolactin is the foot on the brake of the sexual car, whereas dopamine is the foot on the gas of the sexual car. So sometimes we add dopamine agonists when someone is taking an antidepressant and is experiencing some sort of sexual dysfunction. We also want to make sure we monitor men on antipsychotics in terms of their prolactin levels to make sure that they don't get too high. And if they are too high, we either back off on the meds or we add a dopamine agonist, such as Wellbutrin or Bupropion. Another class of medication that is notorious for causing erectile dysfunction and arousal problems for women as well are antihypertensive medications, in particular diuretics and beta blockers. And in fact, 
these are so likely to cause arousal problems that it's the number one reason that men and women discontinue their blood pressure meds is because it affects their arousal. And up to 70% of people report that they discontinued their blood pressure medication because it was affecting the arousal phase of sexual response. So there are other medicines that can cause sexual side effects as well, and I'll be addressing those in upcoming episodes, but I just want you to be aware if you're taking an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, or an antihypertensive medication, that these could be physiologically interfering with the phases of sexual response, and you should speak to your doctor about that. So, how sex-savvy are you? Let's take this week's Sex IQ quiz and find out. For today's Sex IQ quiz, I have three true-false questions for you. Okay, ready? Question number one, true or false? Men can break their penises. The answer is true. Not like breaking a bone, but... Men can fracture their penis, and this happens when the blood vessels burst and it causes painful swelling and bruising. One study showed that for men who experienced this so-called broken penis, one-third of the fractures occurred during intercourse where the woman was on top. So although women are more likely to experience orgasm while they're on top and they're so-called driving, it is potentially dangerous for men. So make sure that if someone is enjoying herself on top of you, that she's careful and not too rough, or you could end up with some painful swelling. Okay, question number two. Women prefer long penises. Women like long penises. True or false? Well, a lot of men talk about measuring and how long they are and how big they are. And here's the thing. Women tend to prefer girth or width over length. All the sensitive nerves are on the outer sides of a woman's genitalia. So length doesn't really offer much. And as my resident medical expert, Dr. Goldstein, once told me, long and thin does get in, but short and thick does the trick. Okay, moving on to sex IQ quiz, question number three. Boys can't get erections until puberty. True or false? Now, I'm sure there's lots of men listening who know that the answer is false because they recall having erections prior to puberty, but you may not realize that baby boys can get erections from the time that they're born and even before they're born in utero. I have an ultrasound of one of my sons in utero with an erection and sucking his thumb. So baby boys often will get erections when their diaper is off or if they're in water getting a bath. It's completely normal, completely natural, and completely healthy for boys to have erections. And the worst thing you can do is shame a little boy for his arousal. This is a a sex positive show and we want to encourage boys and girls and men and women of all ages and stages to celebrate their sexuality. 
So when I work with a man in my office, I'm typically addressing the emotional, interpersonal, social, psychological barriers to arousal. But there are some men who like to add medical treatments just to boost the work that they're doing in my office. And so we would start with basic lifestyle changes, such as losing weight or quitting smoking, limiting alcohol, changing blood pressure meds, maybe tweaking the psych meds. Exercise is really key. You want to get that blood flowing. And so some guys are able to turn the corner just by implementing certain basic lifestyle changes, which are good for their heart anyway. But for some guys, it's not enough and they need to go to the next level of treatment. And that would be the PDE5 class of drugs that I spoke of earlier, Viagra, Cialis, Levitra, and many more. I'll be talking a little bit more in just a few minutes about PDE5s and some of the benefits and some of the limitations of them. But some guys are non-responders for a variety of reasons, or the side effects are intolerable. So if that's not going to work, then we would increase to the next level of care, which would be either penile injection, just a, a small needle that goes directly into the shaft of the penis and administers medication directly there. Or some men prefer penile suppositories where they just take a little pellet and insert it into the urethral opening and massage the tip of their penis so that can get absorbed. If the injections or the suppositories are not efficacious or discontinued for some other reason, we might recommend a vacuum pump. We might actually sometimes do the pump before the injections and the suppositories that can sort of go either way. But the vacuum pump works, but it's not exactly discreet. You put a tube on your penis and there's a a rubber band at the base and then you literally pump an erection. It's sort of like sealing, like drawing the, the blood into the penis and then you remove the tube, but the base the, the rubber base stays at the bottom. So there's no way to, to do that without your partner knowing. For some guys, that's good enough and they're happy with that. Other guys might want to try a penile implant. And I'll be talking with Dr. Goldstein about that in another episode. Some guys opt for what's called penile revascularization surgery. And Dr. Goldstein is one of the few in the country that is actually able to perform that procedure. Other men will use testosterone or hormonal interventions to see what's going on. So we would always want to do blood work to see what their hormonal levels are before we consider adding any sort of hormones. So those are examples of some of the options that are out there for men. And in spite of these options, men continue to really, really panic that they may experience erectile dysfunction. Okay, folks, here's another impromptu pop quiz. Does the date March 27th, 1998 mean anything to you? Well, it's a date that will live in pharmacologic infamy. It's the day that the long-awaited Viagra or sildenafil was finally FDA approved It created a second chance revolution for millions of men who had been out of the sexual game. And it began the era of Viagra mania, a cultural phenomenon unparalleled in modern history. But like many new innovations, there's an upside and a downside. And although the upside in this case is obvious and a blessing to many, for this episode, I'm going to talk about some of the downsides of sexual pharmaceuticals, otherwise known as lifestyle drugs. But first, here are some fun facts for you. Viagra was the fastest selling drug in history. 
No surprise given how men value their sexual prowess. More than 600,000 prescriptions were filled in the first month. That is a lot of erections. Pfizer, the drug company that puts out Viagra, earned over $1 billion, billion with a B, in the first year. Nine Viagra pills are dispensed every second. And the vasodilation effect, which basically means blood vessels open and blood can rush to the genitals or other cavities in the body, other space in the body, it was actually discovered by accident. Sildenafil, which is the generic name of the drug, was originally marketed as a blood pressure medication. And although it was not effective for controlling blood pressure, many men were reporting spontaneous erections as a side effect. And bam, Viagra was born. So let's talk about some of the limitations or downsides of drugs like sildenafil and others. Some men and their partners report that the side effects make them uncomfortable. One woman told me that her husband said the side effects were worse than the side effects of his chemotherapy. Wow. Another said, we can't use it because he gets such a bad headache and backache that he can't think straight. A man told me that sometimes it feels like his face is going to blow up because there's so much sinus pressure. The most common side effects of PDE5s are facial flushing, headache, backache, sinus pressure, and visual changes. The reason for the sinus pressure is because the blood is flowing to all cavities, including the sinus cavity, and that's why men feel that flushing in their face. We've all seen the TV commercials warning of erections that last for more than four hours. Well, this is actually called priapism, and it's not only extremely painful, but it can be a life-threatening medical emergency. Some women are offended by the fact that men need pharmacologic support to get aroused. This causes some women to feel like they're not sexy enough to turn their man on. Rather than perceiving it as the need just to open up the blood vessels and get the blood flow flowing, some women perceive it as a personal affront to their desirability. But with psychoed, I can usually reframe this for the woman and she feels less angry or insecure about her partner's need. But that is a barrier for many women who are like, what, you know, I don't turn you on or you need a pill to get hard. So that can definitely be a common theme that I discuss in my office. There's also a pressure not to so-called waste a pill. Some women report feeling obligated to have sex because their partner doesn't want to waste the pill due to the expense because these pills can be quite expensive, anywhere from $30 to $90 per pill. And most insurance companies are quite stingy about doling out this magic pill. Some women report that they've actually been raped by their partners to avoid wasting a pill. Some female clients report that they are not asked sometimes if they're receptive to intercourse before their partners swallow the pill. Once it's down the hatch, the pressure is on to take advantage of that impending erection. Sexual pharmaceutical drugs reinforce our misinformed cultural bias on penetrative sex. I'll be talking about this much more in my episode on female orgasm. But there are many people who still believe that if you don't have vaginal penile intercourse, it doesn't count. You didn't have sex. This notion, unfortunately, perpetuates rigidity and narrow thinking about what constitutes sex. When erections are unreliable, men are forced to be creative and think outside the box. 
Furthermore, some women report that they came to enjoy a more platonic nature of the relationship when the erections were unreliable or absent. Some women complained to me in my office that the foreplay that was nurtured during the so-called ED phase disappears or is significantly reduced once a man regains his erection reliability. One woman told me, as soon as it worked again, we were right back to wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And so I hear this from women a lot who say the medication allows men to revert back to a time in their sex life where he was less focused on foreplay and less focused on pleasing them. Many women also complain that they were not involved in the initial decision to try a vasodilator in the first place. And for some reason, docs don't do a great job of including partners in the initial consultation, and they're given no input regarding the partner's feelings about using this type of medication. Research shows that a buy-in from the partner, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, predicts higher satisfaction for both parties. So if you get your partner's support before you start the medication, you're both much more likely to be satisfied with the result. Overall, when partners are included, which is rare, physicians do a pretty poor job of providing adequate instructions on how to safely and effectively use the medication. In one study published in 2005, 12% of men reported that they did not know that sexual stimulation was required in order for the drug to work. I've had men say that they took the pill and then just sort of stared at their crotch and waited for, for this erection to just manifest out of thin air. And nearly half of men in this study were taking too small of a dose. 22% did not know when to take the pill. And only one-third of men were scheduled for a follow-up appointment. Yikes. Could you imagine being given a blood pressure medication or insulin and just sort of sent on your way and said, okay, good luck with that, and and no follow-up? That's crazy. And even when drugs like Viagra work, and they do 65-ish to 80-ish percent of the time, couples often report no increase in sexual activity. The discontinuation rate is quite high, anywhere from 50 to 80%, depending upon what study you refer to. So why would 50 to 80% of men stop taking Viagra even though it works? Well, here's the answer. It's because good erections don't fix bad relationships. Many complex dynamics may stand in the way of one or both partners feeling sexually satisfied. Lifestyle drugs are a wonderful boon to couples who report high non-sexual satisfaction, but if there's an unresolved resentment, this must be explored in therapy before a partner will be receptive to using the medication. Uh, If your partner generally does not like you, improved erectile functioning will not go very far. The next thing I want to talk about is a psychological dependence on the medication. And I see this all the time in my office. Over time, men become psychologically dependent on the vasodilators and believe that they cannot enjoy any aspect of sex without them. Even if the diabetes that caused the vascular problem that caused the ED in the first place is well-managed, he may still fear he cannot perform without the drug. Even if the OCD that created the performance anxiety to begin with is well-managed and he's no longer having intrusive thoughts, he might still feel like he needs the drug in order to perform. This puts needless parameters around the frequency and spontaneity of sex. Instead of increasing confidence, 
These drugs leave some men feeling vulnerable and dependent on chemicals to have a good time. The last aspect of the sexual pharmaceutical drugs that I want to point out today are affairs. It has been shown that starting a drug like Cialis or Levitra may increase a man's risk for having an affair. That's fascinating. Some divorce attorneys have actually carved out a niche practice handling exclusively what are called Viagra affair cases. When someone gets a new toy, they're going to want to play with it. And if a partner is unreceptive, a man may consider finding an alternative playmate, especially in the late 90s and early 2000s when Viagra was was new to the market. I treated a slew of couples post-Viagra affairs. Now, I just want to state for the record that I believe that the upside of sexual pharmaceuticals far outweigh the downside. Millions of couples enjoy the healthy benefits of these drugs every day. These drugs have enabled many loving couples to resume lovemaking, which is an integral part of overall life satisfaction. And we are fortunate to live in a time when medicine and pharmacology can enhance our quality of life and sexual health. Let us not overlook, however, the importance of the psychological and emotional factors and relationship dynamics, such as sphere of influence, open communication, power, control, collaboration, expectations, etc., when deciding to make changes to the delicate sexual equilibrium. I'm going to close today's show by answering a question from one of my listeners. This is from a listener named Dante. So, hey, Dante, if you're listening. Dante wrote in, why do I prefer to have sex by myself instead of with my lady? Well, this is a common question, Dante, and I promised you I would answer it on the air. And for reasons I already spoke about, many men come to prefer solo sex over partner sex. That could be because the imagery in porn is more erotic to them or their partner is inhibited. But it can also be because you get a sense that your partner is unreceptive or unenthusiastic, doesn't respond in the way you'd like her to. And also... It could be that when you're with your partner, you experience some sort of performance anxiety or you worry that she's not going to have an orgasm or she might yell at you or insult you or criticize you in some way. And it's just easier and more efficient to have that orgasm by yourself. But I will warn that When a man comes to prefer solo sex over partner sex, it's a slippery slope and you can end up in a spot that is not going to help you in the long run. So thank you, Dante, for that question. And I'd like to thank you all for listening to this episode of Sex Savvy. If you found it valuable, please rate, review, like, share with your friends. We hope that you learned something today about sexual health, sexual medicine, or your own sexual script. Have a great week. I'll see you soon.